This is Broken, Jeffrey Epstein. I'm Arielle Levy. This week, reporter Julie K. Brown. It was one of those kinds of careers where, you know, you start at the bottom, the very bottom. Julie spoke with executive producer Adam Davidson about the long road from waiting tables to becoming a star investigative reporter at the Miami Herald and about how she was able to break one of 2018's biggest stories. I'm a runner and I run a lot. And one of my go-to run songs is a song by ACDC called It's a Long Way to the Top If You Want to Rock and Roll. (laughs) And really, it's been a long haul. Hi, Adam. Hey, Ari. So, Adam, this week you talk with Julie K. Brown, who's one of our executive producers on this show. What made you want to do that? Well, Julie, of course, is the Miami Herald reporter whose incredible series about Jeffrey Epstein almost exactly a year ago is the reason his name was thrust into the public conversation, the reason we're pretty sure he was rearrested and then ultimately killed himself, the reason we're having this big national conversation, including this podcast, about how a man could just so blatantly and flagrantly commit such vile sexual crimes against children for so long. And And it all goes back to Julie. And it all goes back to what I've learned about Julie, that Julie Brown has an amazing story in and of itself. She really did not grow up with a lot of opportunity, thrust at her with a lot with an easy pathway. And she worked hard her whole life, doggedly, often in in obscure back corners of journalism, but just focused, wouldn't take no for an answer. And it made me realize that understanding Julie's story is part of this because it's because of who she is that she was the one who brought this story forward when so many Others who received the benefits of our establishment looked the other way, made accommodations to Epstein's wealth. She's sort of the opposite of everyone else we know in journalism in New York who's, like, gone to an Ivy League school and just, you know, had this direct path into the establishment, really. So tell me about that. The only thing I know about Julie's childhood from her Twitter bio is that she's crazy about Philadelphia. Well, she is definitely crazy about Philadelphia, even though she lives in Miami and I live in New York. I feel like we talk about Philadelphia almost every time we talk. (laughs) Although she didn't grow up in Philadelphia, she grew up in an outer suburb called Sellersville. And that's what I asked her about when we sat down together. Great. I'll let you take it from here. Thanks. So Julie grew up in the 1960s and 70s in a middle-class town with her sister and brother and their mom. And her family was seen as something of a black sheep. Back then... It was frowned upon for a woman to be single with three children, especially in the, you know, middle class neighborhood where we grew up. So we were pretty much ostracized by a lot of people in the neighborhood. She remembers being bullied at the bus stop when she was little. The scariest time was mischief night, the night before Halloween. That's when the neighborhood kids would all come out and they would dirt bomb our house and break the windows. And I remember sitting in the living room every mischief night just holding hands with my mother and my brother and my sister, just thinking, I wonder what they're going to do this year. Julie says her childhood was rough enough that she has blocked a lot out and doesn't remember many of the details. 
I found it so striking that Julie's childhood seemed so similar to many of Epstein's victims. She was this young girl who didn't have parents able to protect her and guide her. I could relate to some of these women in the Epstein story because they didn't necessarily come from a situation where their parents were abusive, but they came from situations where their parents were working so hard that they were never around. And you sometimes go down the wrong path when that happens. Her single mom was just scraping by. The power company once came to her childhood home and took their furniture when they couldn't pay the electric bill. She had no dad around, and Julie's mom didn't or really couldn't make time for the kids. I don't know if she knew how to really be a mother. Because she was working, you know, in her defense, she was working. She had been supporting three children on her own, and she worked two jobs, and she was just working. I was beating myself up thinking that I wasn't a good daughter, and that must be why my mom wasn't there for me. You know, she was just never really there for me. So I started, um, I met some people who were older who just became my friends and my, to some degree my parents um, because I didn't really have parents. You know, I didn't feel like they were ever there for me. Coming home from school, no one to talk to, you know, I just felt very alone in my life. So at 16, Julie moved out. Legally, I signed papers to become uh, emancipated, began living with some friends who were older than I and just tried to make my way. She moved in with some older girlfriends who were already out of school. So she's 16, going to high school during the day and working, working constantly. I started at James Way, if you've ever, it's like the old version of Kmart. I worked at a James Way starting, I think, when I was in high school. And then I worked at a flower shop delivering flowers. And then I worked at the lampshade factory. Then I worked in a paper packaging company. Uh, Then I became a a clerk in a bell company, Shomer Carolines. Oh, literal bells. Yeah, real bells. This will, as you'll see, be a theme in Julie's life, constantly working, multiple jobs, never giving up. These days, after years of therapy and becoming a mom herself, Julie says she no longer resents her mother and is able to see that she did get this unstoppable grit from her. My mom's mantra all the time, which my sister and I always kind of roll our eyes at, but it's really true. She would always say, Julie, only the strong survive. She would say that all the time. So that's reality that kind of got embedded in my head from the time I was little. And it sort of made me keep thinking, okay, take another breath. You're going to get through this. Only strong survive. At 16, working one of her jobs, taking care of little kids at a daycare, Julie met an older woman, Candace Croft, who changed her life. She used to make fun of me because I used to go to the daycare center in my high heels. And (laughs) I was sort of like, I don't know, I didn't really fit in, I guess, as a daycare worker wearing, you know, daycare clothes. I was always wearing short skirts and... (laughs) high heels and things like that. So they used to make fun of me. And um, I don't know, we just hit it off. And she was much older than me. She was younger than my mother, but a motherly kind of figure for me. And they always made me feel like I could do something more with my life. Candace was an artist. She and her husband, John, lived on a farm. 
I just felt like I'd never met anybody like these people before. They were sort of ex-hippies. <laughs> and we would, I would end up over at the farm just solving all the world's problems over a couple glasses of wine. As Julie told the story of Candace and John Croft, I found myself thinking of Jeffrey Epstein and Jelaine Maxwell, who were masters at playing the part of a caring older couple who only wanted to help young women achieve their dreams. Julie, 16, on her own, was as vulnerable as any of Epstein's victims. But she was lucky. The older couple she met were good. They were kind and genuinely supportive. And they opened the world for her. They looked at the world in a different way than I had ever known before. So it was just something in my head that I kept thinking, wow, there's a whole nother way that I could live my life, you know, besides just waiting tables and trying to, you know, figure out how I'm going to pay my next bill. I could do art. I could do writing. I could just more of an intellectual way of living my life. Julie worked for four years after high school, but with Candace and John's encouragement, she decided to apply to Temple University. Temple gave her a full ride but Julie wasn't sure what to study. I knew I loved journalism. I was editor of the high school paper. But I thought, you know, I'm not going to be able to make a living as a journalist. But my very first journalism class, the very first semester, I took a class with a professor who was a full-time reporter at the Pottstown Mercury newspaper. And he offered me an internship the following semester. And I worked for the Pottstown Mercury, and I was going out doing all kinds of cool stories. And I did so well at it that they offered me a full-time job at the Mercury. But it had taken me four years to get to school, and I wasn't going to leave at that point. And so thankfully, I stayed there. And then the next summer, did a public relations internship in Philadelphia, and I hated it. <laughs> and then I did a, an internship the following year at NPR in Washington. I sort of talked my way into it. I called them up one day and offered to do an internship there. And anyway, all those internships kind of led me to what I really wanted to do, which was write for newspapers. Julie graduated and actually got a job in journalism. She was hired as a reporter at the Bethlehem Globe Times, a small regional paper. But it did not feel like the start of a promising and lucrative career in the field. Julie's new job almost seemed set up for her to fail. My first or second day on that job, all of a sudden we saw these police officers outside and the editor who hired me came over to me and said, I got to tell you something. We just laid off half the staff. They had hired me to replace this woman who had been doing the job forever. And I'm covering the Bethlehem Police Department. And the cops didn't want to talk to me for the longest time because they were so angry that my predecessor had gotten fired. And not only, I mean, fired in a very ugly way, really. And uh, so it took me a long time to make inroads with the police department. That's when Julie tapped into her superpower, the superpower her mom had given her. She was going to be the strong person who survived, and she was going to work as hard as she had to to get ahead. I just kept plugging away. And I don't know, sometimes when people tell me no or they're not going to cooperate with me, it makes me try even harder to win their trust, you know, and, I, and that was part of what I did, I think, at that job. Julie built a career moving from tiny, small-town paper to small-town paper, 
She covered the police and local government. She even wrote obituaries for a while. Which, by the way, was a great beat. I think I learned a lot about writing doing obits, actually. Because somebody, just some random person, you have to figure out how to make 800 words or whatever interesting. Yeah, I love doing obituaries because we did them like really creatively back then, not like how they're done now. You really called people and interviewed people who knew the person that died. So, you know, I learned a lot doing that. Julie also got married, had two kids. She was building a life in Pennsylvania, doing what she had barely dreamed was possible. But her worries she had as a student never went away. It was hard to make a living as a journalist. Oh, I waitressed throughout my whole beginning of my journalism career. I always waitressed. You know, when I worked at all those weeklies, I because I couldn't su- support myself on a newspaper salary. So I kind of compare it to a starving artist that's hoping to be discovered because I worked, you know, waitressing jobs almost until I got to Philadelphia. I think I worked waitressing jobs most of my career, wow. journalism career. Wow. And what kind of restaurants? Just anything, really. Any restaurant where I can make good tips. I worked at this place in Quakertown called Bubba's Pop Belly Stove. So I I did a lot of waitressing work just to support my journalism career. Now, if you've only ever worked one job at a time, this probably seems punishing, almost impossible. Working a full demanding job all week and then working a whole other fully demanding job. I waited tables myself in my teens and 20s, and I can't imagine how she was able to do this. I always worried about how I was going to pay the rent. So that's kind of became part of the fabric of my life. I mean, even when I was living with my mother, I was worried about money because my mother didn't have any money. And so it it became normal to struggle in a way. So I didn't really think about it. Julie just kept telling herself if she works hard enough, if she sticks with it and writes good enough stories, one day— she will get to a big city daily newspaper. It was always a dream to go to a real metro back then when you're in journalism. That was the goal. And I had a couple of interviews with the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was my dream was to work for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And, you know, after a couple of tries at that, I thought to myself, well, maybe I'm not going to go anywhere with this career. Eventually, she started worrying. Maybe I'm not going to make it to the big city. Maybe I'm never going to make money in this field. Maybe I have to do what so many other journalists she had met had done. Maybe I just have to give up the profession. I called one of my old editors and I said, maybe I should go into public relations. You know, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to a metro. And he was my old editor at the Bucks County Courier Times named Len Brown. And he said to me, you know, Julie, I might say that to other writers. But for you, I would say, no, you need to stick in journalism. You know, you're going to go far. And finally, Julie's work paid off. She got a job at a big city daily in Philadelphia, although not the Inquirer, the Philadelphia Daily News. And it was probably one of the best newspaper jobs I ever had because it was so much fun. We were just so on your feet, just really working fast. And you had to really be aggressive because we were up against the Philadelphia Inquirer and the news market in Philadelphia is very competitive. And so you had to really hone your journalism skills pretty quickly and and know what you were doing. Otherwise, you were going to get, you know, you were going to get your ass kicked, really, because it was a very tough journalism market. I mean, now it's sad to see, but you had 
you know, Philadelphia, Chicago, you had a lot of cities with this rivalry between the big right. broadsheet and the tabloid. Right. And right. Um, and yeah. that was the world that I, walking into the Trib and the Sun-Times where just day by day it felt like a war, like who got the thing from City Hall, who got the, right. you know, right. holy crap, they well, got the and big I, murder. And I often was covering the Philadelphia Police Department and crime back then was crazy. And so we were going out to the badlands of Philadelphia and covering crimes and doing what we used to call house ends, which was basically knocking on people's doors to try to find out what had happened, you know, so. People whose family had been killed overnight. Yeah, you know. yeah. And, you know, it sounds kind of macabre or strange to say, you know, how could you do that? Somebody had just been killed. But it's surprising how people, when they lose someone, and especially if you do it in a delicate, empathetic way, how much they really do want to talk about their loved ones who have been killed and how they want to tell their story. You know, so that's another thing. You know, you learn how to approach people from all walks of life. And because I had some of that adversity in my life, I guess I understood that. Julie started to experience the power of journalism. One story she wrote about firefighters with hepatitis C actually helped make it mandatory to test public safety workers for the disease. Now, at this point, she's been a journalist for more than 20 years, and she has never lived farther than a short drive from where she grew up. And then in the early 2000s, she got a call from the Miami Herald, and Julie decided it was time to move away from Pennsylvania. And I remember thinking at the time, what the hell am I doing? I'm leaving. I'm doing, at the time, I was going through a divorce. So I'm doing all the things they tell you not to do at one time. Move, get a new job, and get a divorce at the same time. And I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing? And I'm thinking, you know what? You don't really know why this is happening now, but maybe you will later. So just go through with it and see how it works out. And I was hired as an editor, actually, initially, uh, enterprise editor in one of their bureaus. And then at the time, the newspaper business was already starting to have major problems elsewhere in the country. But in Miami, it was still doing pretty well. And so I thought I would be safe. But after a couple years went by, they started laying off people too. And I went back to being a reporter because I felt like I was safer. I always never felt secure in journalism because, you know, it's just such a changing industry. And, you know, it was always the cost of newsprint was going up, you know, then subscriptions, then we lost classified, digital started moving in. And I always felt like, well, at least I have my waitressing skills. You know, I kept thinking, what's my plan B? So, like I said, I've never really felt secure in journalism. And because of that, I tried to do every beat imaginable. Like whenever a story came up that was big, even if it was like the sports beat, like I did a big investigation into Alex Rodriguez and steroids quite a few years ago. And I remember thinking, how am I going to do this? I don't know anything about sports and baseball and steroids. But my editor at the time said, look, they really need your journalism skills more than they need your sports knowledge for this story. So I tried to be as versatile. I don't remember ever saying no to a story, really. I always was willing to do a story because I figured they're going to keep the reporters that always say yes, <laughs> can do anything. Even though she'd been recruited to the Herald, even though she was finally able to stop waitressing, Julie was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Even at this point, nothing in her life felt easy. I was a single mom at that point, and I was working really long hours 
I don't really know, looking back, how I did it, quite frankly. It was tough. It was really hard. And you show up with no sources. Like in Philadelphia, yeah. you knew a lot of people. That... Well, I was an editor at first, so it wasn't quite that bad because I relied on the reporters and had to do, you know, editing more. But it required working really late because, you know, the reporters don't turn in their stories till the end of the day. And then so you were working a lot of long hours. So it was it was hard. I still kind of think back, like, how the fuck did I make it, really? Yeah. It's kind of from where I've been and how hard I worked. When people say, like, you know, bring up, hey, you were, like, lucky or something, I always think, trust me, it was not luck. I mean, I guess there's always a little bit of luck in everything that you do, and I certainly have a lot of faith in God. It makes me grateful that uh, I have good people around me that love me, you know, my my kids have been incredibly supportive of my best friend. My best friend, Nancy, I mean, I probably wouldn't, I don't know if I'd be alive uh, if it wasn't for her. I mean, I went through some really hard times with depression and anxiety, and and I was suicidal a number of times in my life. And, you know, she was always there for me, you know, always. And, you know, she's like my sister, really. When you were struggling as a journalist and waiting tables. At different times in my life, I went through really hard depression and anxiety. I used to have days where I would be in bed and I would think, this is a dark day. I'm just going to stay in bed. I mean, I had those days sometimes. And I finally had to say, look, you know, do you really want to live your life, especially after you have children and after I had my children? I didn't want to live my life like that. So I I just tried to come up with ways to overcome those feelings of anxiety and depression. And ultimately, you know, I, I found a good doctor. I did start taking medication, and which I didn't want to. Like everybody, you want to fight against that. I, I've met so many people say, oh, I don't want to take medication. Well, you know what? Do you want to be a miserable person? Do you want to be a bad mother? Because that was the thing that drove me. Because I thought, I'm not going to be the kind of mother that my mother was to me. I want to be, you know, a different kind of mother. And I thought the only way I'm going to be able to do that is, is if I know how to cope with my anxiety and depression, because otherwise it's going to bring me down. So ultimately, I, you know, I, I learned how to cope with it, both with medication and also doing other things like running and exercising and just I love to cook, you know, just certain things that put me in my happy place, you know. In 2008, when Jeffrey Epstein went to jail, Julie had been living in Miami for three years. But at the time, she had barely even heard his name. If you go back and read what happened, the Herald really didn't cover it much at all because it was considered a Palm Beach story. And in fact, it was so not covered by the Herald that at one point when the prosecutors were talking about trying to give him a plea deal, they suggested that he plead guilty in Miami because the media wasn't covering it and he would be able to slide away even easier in Miami. That's how much it wasn't being covered. Julie eventually learned a lot more about Epstein, but by chance, through another investigation that she was doing into Florida's prisons. It's just horrendous what goes on in America's prisons. And Emily Michaud, my videographer who has done a number of my investigative pieces with me, we went into the women's prison in Florida, in Central Florida, Lowell Correctional Institution, which at the time was the largest women's prison in America. and. We did a three-part series about how the 
women there were essentially being pressured to have sex with the guards in order to get basic things like, you know, toiletries, soap, you know, toothbrushes. And the corruption that went on there surrounding the sex and, you know, the exchange of contraband and you know, so we did this big series, and in the course of doing this series on the women's prison, I had talked to a number of inmates, current inmates and former inmates, who talked a lot about sex trafficking. Julie won a George Polk Award for this series in 2013, and it was through talking to those female inmates that she became interested in reporting on victims of sex trafficking. When you get out of prison, especially as a woman, and you're a felon, okay, think about this— most of them are not in for violent crimes. They're usually economic crimes, quite frankly, things that they do to support their families. And you do your time, you get out of prison. So think about it. How do you get a job? Nobody wants to hire you. You're a convicted felon and you had an economic crime. Who wants to hire you? So I realized that a lot of these women, if they were able to, they got into the sex field. And it was not always voluntary. It was people who had reached out to them. Again, there are people in America who seek out these women who were in prison thinking they're going to be easy prey because they have nothing else to support their families on. They have nothing else they can do. So I knew that that was happening, and I decided I wanted to try to do something on sex trafficking. And quite frankly, every time I Googled sex trafficking in Florida, Jeffrey Epstein's story came up. How Julie decided to start her own reporting on Jeffrey Epstein right after this. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies. The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. Julie was reading what had been reported about Jeffrey Epstein back in 2008. And as she went through article after article, she became more and more shocked. And I'd think, how did this happen? How could he have gotten away with this? And like I said, I started trying to do a sex trafficking story, and I just kept coming back to it. And then what happened in March 2017 President Trump nominated Alex Acosta as labor secretary, and I knew that Alex Acosta was the prosecutor who signed off on the deal that Epstein got. The deal Epstein got, of course, is something we've talked about before on this podcast. And even though prosecutors knew that Epstein was running a multi-state, multinational sex trafficking ring and personally sexually abusing dozens of adolescents each month— They gave him this absurd sweetheart deal, 13 months in jail, where he was allowed to leave for 12 hours a day, six days a week. He also arranged for immunity for several of the people who allegedly helped him traffic in young women. 
Acosta signed off on all of it and conspired with Epstein's legal team to prevent his victims from knowing about this deal until after it was finalized. Julie watched Acosta's confirmation hearings very closely. And I thought, wow, let's, this is going to be really controversial, you know, because he's being nominated to an agency that oversees human trafficking. So they're going to really grill him on this, right? So I listened to the confirmation hearings and, you know, they asked a couple of questions and he kind of dodged the answers. He didn't really answer it. And that was it. And then the stories that happened after that, talking about his nomination, barely mentioned this case. Some of them mentioned it, but it was sort of almost like a footnote. So I said to my boss, Casey Frank, I said, you know, I wonder what the women think about this. Here's the guy that kind of let this man who had sexually abused them and even raped them in some cases. And now he's leading one of the most important, largest agencies in America. So it started out that I thought I was just going to do a reaction piece from the victim's point of view. Like a one-day story. Yeah, or, you know, a week-long story. Her idea was not to do a major investigation. It was more of a follow-up to the existing stories. She just wanted to talk to some of Epstein's victims and get their responses to Acosta becoming a cabinet member. But then as soon as I got into it, I realized, first of all, their names weren't contained in any documents because they were minors. So that was a big job. I had to find out who they were. And then I realized that You know, just by trying to find them, I found out stories about them just without even talking to them about how one of them was in prison for drugs, serving a longer term than Epstein served. Three years, Epstein served 13 months. There were women that had huge drug problems. There were women who had lost their children because they couldn't care for them. There were a couple of women who had died. So all these women... They're falling into a situation where they've been abused, betrayed and abused by Epstein. But then you have this, I came to learn as I read the court files that they were betrayed by the state prosecutor. They were betrayed by the federal prosecutors. They were betrayed by the fact that Epstein's lawyers were allowed to intimidate them and follow their families and dig into every sordid detail of their lives. And the more I read and learned, the more I realized this is more than just a story about a reaction from these women. This is a big story. And Julie wanted to report it. Well, the big focus of the investigation from the beginning was to try to get the women to talk about this after all this. That was probably half the project, you know, because it took a long time to find out where they were after all these years, and even find out who they were. At the beginning, Julie thought this would all be straightforward, but she figured out pretty quickly that she couldn't get the names of Epstein's victims because so many of them were minors, and therefore their names were redacted from court documents. So she switched tracks, contacting lawyers for the victims. The Lawyers initially didn't even really weren't eager to cooperate with me because they had spoken with a lot of reporters over the years who they felt after my series. They said, you know, we got to the point where we just told every reporter that called us, here's the court file, read it and call us back when you've read it. And he said the only reporter that ever called them back who had read the file was you, you know, because it is it's 10 years worth of files. You know, you really have to read it. 
Julie took the pile of documents, the 10 years of court files, and started reading. She was convinced that somewhere buried in these pages, there would be something that would explain how Epstein had ended up getting such a pass from prosecutors, how he got this ridiculous deal. She wanted her investigation to be able to explain why and how Acosta had approved Epstein's plea bargain. I just thought that if I read every single piece of paper, that maybe I would find the reason for that. That there must be some logical There's going to be something buried in one of these files that's going to say so-and-so at the DOJ said you got to do it for that reason. And when it was all done, I really didn't find that because remember a lot of the documents, even in the civil cases that were in the court file, both in New York and in Florida, contained a lot of documents that were sealed or redacted. So you read the filings, and then you want to talk to these victims who were girls when they were sexually attacked by Epstein but were now of age. Without giving away too many secrets, how do you find an unnamed minor? How did you get to talk to them? Well, that was a harder process than I knew going into it because, as I said, I didn't realize I was thinking these women are now in their late 20s, early 30s, so it can't be that hard to find out who they are. But in fact, all the records in the case, uh, their names were all redacted because they were minors. And I would call the lawyers, and many of the lawyers didn't want to cooperate with me at all. Some of them reached out to their clients. Their clients came back. They didn't want to talk to me. So I found out I had to figure out another way of of approaching them. So I began looking at the, all the records. And inevitably, when you, if you're a reporter, you kind of know this if you read a lot of documents, inevitably, they forget to redact something. So you will get a name here and there. And then as a result of getting a name here and there, remember all these girls had gone to school in Palm Beach. Most of them were at a high school, Royal Palm Beach High School. So I was able to then figure out if I got the name of one girl, this was a sort of a sex pyramid scheme. So these were girls who recruited other girls. So they knew each other, a lot of them. Not all of them, but they, they knew each other. So, you know, I found them on Facebook, and then inevitably they had a few friends. You know, he he also, Epstein had a kind of a profile of a girl that he liked, someone who was vulnerable, someone who, they, the look was always the same. He really liked young girls who were blonde and blue-eyed. So you find one woman who was a victim, and she might have a friend who looked like that, blonde hair and blue eyes. And then I was able to figure out, yeah, she's the Rebecca that's mentioned in this document, probably, because she's friends with this other woman who's in the document. So it was this big, giant puzzle. So at that point, initially, I thought, well, I'll call them. Well, no. What am I going to say? They're going to get a call after 10 years from a reporter who wants to talk to them, and they're going to slam the phone down. So I quickly thought, that's not going to work. And I did call a couple of them, and it didn't work very well. So I decided to write them all letters. And that's ultimately what I did, which at that time, I was starting to contact, like, experts on, you know, interviewing victims of sexual assault. And I had put out a number of calls to a number of people. Because like I said, I quickly realized you can't just call them and ask them, oh, I understand you're a victim. Uh, talk to me. you got to approach it from a different point of view. So I started calling some experts. And what is advice? I mean, how do you approach someone who's a victim? of? Well, I think the key with the story with these women was that I was focusing on something 
that I don't know whether a lot of reporters had focused on. Most of the coverage they felt anyway was geared more toward the salacious angles of the story and who was involved. And what I said to the victims was, if they wanted to talk about what he did to them, that was fine. But I said, if you don't want to talk to me about what he did to you, you don't have to tell me. And I think that it eased their fears that I didn't need to know all that salacious detail. I wanted to know more about them and who they were and what this had done to their lives and what they thought about Alex Acosta now that he was labor secretary and how did this affect your family? You know, there were women who this really almost destroyed even their families. They felt ashamed. The blame, the self-blame that they felt. You know, Emily went on a lot of those interviews with me and she's very good and very gentle. Could you imagine having a camera in your face while you're talking about one of the darkest times of your life? And we just did it really carefully and and didn't, I don't think we prodded a whole lot. I think once we started telling them what we were interested in, it sort of was like a, a well, you know, they were like so ready, many of them, to really talk about this part of the story that they felt hadn't really been told before. And Michelle was the first to talk? Michelle was the first one. You may remember Michelle Licata from the last episode of this show. Julie first reached out to her by letter. She now lives in Tennessee, and she got a lawyer, local lawyer, to call me and respond and find out what I was doing. And I think he advised her not to talk to me, but she agreed to anyway. And now, you know, however long it was, that lawyer actually sent me an email recently and said, you know, I remember telling her not to talk to you, and I'm so glad that she did. But that was a watershed in the whole process for Emily and I because— and I might get a little emotional about it because it, she was the first one to talk to us and trust us. And, you know, I remember Emily and I doing that interview and it was really emotional. She was crying and, you know, it was her mother was there for part of the interview. And it was a just incredible interview, you know, just talking about her life. And, you know, it's just painful to hear how their lives had changed as a result of this. And... Emily and I had gotten into the car to drive back to Nashville to go home. And in the car, Emily and I were really quiet for a long time, which was really unusual for Emily and I. Because after we do an interview, we're like chatty. We were really quiet. And I remember looking at her and thinking, wow, Emily, this is really big. This is a big story. And then a little bit more time had come by. We were still in the car and I got a phone call from Michelle. And she said, I just want to tell you, I feel better than I have felt in years. That was just something I really, really needed to do, and thank you. And by the way, all the, the other interviews I did were just like that. I mean, they were all powerful in their own way, you know, because they all had a story to tell. And it was a story that, you know, I don't, think these prosecutors even ever understood what this did to these girls and how it altered their lives forever and how they too feared that he was out there still doing this. So they also lived with that agony, knowing that, you know, he was probably still out there abusing other girls just like he had abused them. It took a long time to get these women to go on the record. Other reporters had tried to do it before, but Julie had something that no one else had. 
I honestly was mindful of the fact that their backgrounds, in some respects, mirrored my background. And, you know, I, I thereby, you know, it could have happened to me. I mean, fortunately, it didn't. But I felt like I needed support. And I was fortunate enough to find the right people that helped support me. But there are plenty of, I mean, I could have had some man who I fell in love with. And that that happened in some of these cases. Some of these women fell in love with Epstein because he took care of them. Imagine, here's someone who's kind of there and saying, well, I'm going to help you with this. Don't worry about that. You don't have to worry about that. I'm going to send you to school. You don't have to worry about rent. I'm going to give you a place to live. I mean, I could see how that could happen to anybody and to me as well when you're in a situation where you really don't have any support system and you don't have anybody, you feel very unloved. You don't feel like anybody loves you. Nobody's there. You don't have any kind of a a mechanism where somebody's going to catch you if you fall. And I certainly lived like that a lot. I didn't know whether I had anybody that was ever going to catch me if I fell. Julie started working on this story in March of 2017. And as soon as she got to talk to some of the victims, she knew that would be a very powerful, compelling story. But she kept hoping she could find a smoking gun, something to show who was behind Epstein's plea bargain. She spent more than a year diving into as many documents as she could to fill out that story. But none of them actually held answers by themselves. For example, the FBI files, which came out in late 2017, if you look at only them and nothing else to do with this case, you wouldn't find a story there because most of them were redacted. And there was chicken scratch notes and just huge things that didn't make sense if you look at just the FBI files. But if you take the FBI files and you put it together with the police report and you put it together with the state attorney's files and you put it together with the lawsuits, you put it together with the stories that the girls told me and you put it together with what the detective told me, if you put all that stuff together, it told a much more important story, not only about Jeffrey Epstein, but about just the way our criminal justice system treats victims. And I was just stunned when I put everything together in that way. What had begun as a quick story, something to be dashed off in a few days, had become her entire life. It even took over her house. I had boxes and boxes of documents in my spare bedroom. But as she finished her piece, Julie was worried she hadn't delivered on the main thing she wanted to uncover. I sort of at the end of the whole thing thought, well, You know, it's an important story. I'm glad I did it, but I didn't find the real answer I was looking for. Like, who who was the big gun that told Acosta, you know, or anybody that you had to walk away from this case? And so I was a little, I thought at the time that I filed it, I was proud of what Emily and I had accomplished on one hand. But on the other hand, I thought, well, it's going to maybe be a little bit of a splash and then it's going to be the end of the story and he'll never get arrested and he'll never see justice. And I was sort of thinking, I was a little disappointed in myself, quite frankly. Julie had no idea that this would be the story that would define her career. And then on November 28th, 2018, the story went live. I just showed up in the newsroom that morning, I remember, and, you know, the top story on the board, we have these boards that say what stories at the Miami Herald are being read the most, and the top story on the board was about a woman who had farted in a gas station. 
And it had all these readers, you know, it was going crazy online. <laughs> Wait, well, did you fart in a particularly unusual way? I don't, I don't way, even or? really remember. I should <laughs> look the story up because I don't remember all the details. And, you know, we launched, you know, Perversion of Justice series and... You know, you see it kind of climbing and everybody's in the newsroom looking up and thinking, oh, well, it's still down there. The fart story is still more important. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all of a sudden it started really climbing. And then when it passed the fart story, the whole newsroom started clapping and cheering because it was like, and I thought, OK, thank God it beat the fart story. I can go home now. And before I had a chance to, you know, I had showed up in sweats that morning before I had a chance to leave. I was getting calls from CBS News and, you know, CNN and, you know, we're going to send a team out. And I'm like, what? What? (laughs) It strikes me that so many journalists knew about Epstein and his crimes. I knew about Epstein and his crimes. And these journalists didn't do this reporting. Julie is certainly not the only reporter to cover Epstein, but she's the one who stuck with the story until it broke through our public consciousness. It's like every moment of her tough childhood, all those years struggling in tiny papers, combined with her sympathy for these women, her understanding of what their lives were like, led to this key moment where she was the one to take on this story. At first, though, her work may have captured the world's attention, but didn't seem to impact Epstein's life. You know, you think you do this big piece and it's going to change the world. That's not really how it happens. You have to keep hammering away at it. And then... Sort of in between it being a huge story and Epstein being arrested, what's going on in there with him? What is your sense? Do you have a sense of, I mean, he was still traveling the world with impunity. He was. He was, but he he was starting to panic because I was following his plane path and what he was doing. He was starting to register more like he was supposed to. As a sex offender. Yeah, as a sex offender. He was showing up. In fact, he was showing up more than he needed to. (laughs) I didn't understand it. And then I remembered, oh, well, maybe it's called, called the Palm Beach Sheriff's Office last week, which shows to me that the Palm Beach Sheriff's Office probably called him and told him, you better come in and register after I inquired about it. And you've spent so much of the last few years studying him. How do you understand him as a human being, Jeffrey Epstein? A sociopath, a narcissist, someone that just feels as long as he has money that he can really do anything. And really, that's what happened. I mean, that's essentially what happened. And it was all, here, come fly in my plane. I'm going to take you to my private island. He's someone glamorous and very wealthy and very charismatic. And there were so many people that knew he was doing it, but really didn't say anything or do anything. That's something I've tried to get my head around. How many, so there's him, there's people like Jelaine, Sarah Kellen, there's an inner circle who knew pretty much everything. But then, I mean, even Donald Trump openly joked about, well, he likes really young girls. He clearly knew. How many people, are we talking about hundreds, thousands of people who would have had fairly clear knowledge of what he was doing? There had to be at least hundreds. He had a lot of people working for him over the years, for example, housekeepers and help and drivers and pilots. And there was just so many people that knew just on the inside of his homes But there were a second layer of people who knew what he was doing because they were handling his money or his legal 
things, for example, the visas that he had to get for the models that were coming overseas or whoever he was getting. There were lawyers that did that work. From what I understand from talking to some of the women, he had dentists that were whitening their teeth. You have a 16-year-old girl that's a guy is bringing in to whiten their teeth. What I mean, as dentists, don't you question that? He had uh, doctors giving the girls birth control and testing them for venereal disease. You know, doctors. Underage girls. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, so those are only the cases we know about. So could you imagine how many times suspicious things like this were seen by people? You know, we know that the— Air traffic controllers in the U.S. Virgin Islands saw him getting off the plane with all these young girls. Nobody seemed to say anything. These women, a few of them that were of age that I've spoken to, said, you had to only look at us to know that something was wrong. I mean, when we were on that island, we were sort of told to be very quiet, keep our mouth shut, don't talk to anybody. We were stand there dressed very provocatively, and just, she said, we we had to look like, you know, she was taking Xanax. A lot of them were suffering from anxiety and depression because they got roped into this. And her view is, all you had to do was look at us and know that there's something that wasn't right. She described the whole scene, and I'm thinking, yeah, that sounds really creepy. There had to be people who went to that island and saw these women and thought, this is really creepy because the whole thing sounds <laughs> yeah. really... And he would hold conferences with prestigious scientists and yeah. business people. And yeah, I'm just imagining I go to some event and there's all these middle-aged and older men and all these girls who may or may not be above or below 18 and who can't, who don't say anything, who... They're just on somebody's arms. Like, he used to you know, be in his house at these parties, and he used to have these girls sit on his lap, you know. On his plane, he would have these girls there dressed in, like, candy striper outfits, you know. I mean, in what universe is that okay that you don't ask questions? In the universe, I guess, of wealth and privilege and celebrity? I don't know, but I just think that... It boggles your mind when you think about how long he was doing this. Julie was doing these interviews just earlier this year. It seemed like there were more and more awful stories about Epstein, indications he was still abusing teenage girls, and nothing had been done to stop it. Julie hoped that if she could keep publishing stories, there might be a chance that something would happen. She had heard rumors about an FBI investigation but couldn't confirm anything, so she kept working. She kept reporting and writing stories and hoping something would be enough to have an impact. So I had another investigation plan where I was going to fly out to Hot Springs, Arkansas, because one of the victims was there. Her sister, who was also a victim of Epstein, was going to meet us there. We were all planning to go like the next day when we heard on the news that he had been arrested in New York. That's when the media really got into a frenzy, I think, uh, after he was arrested. Then everybody in the world, you know, was hopping on the story. 
Now, this is a moment where if Julie was a different kind of person, she might have started doing victory laps, bragging about what she had made happen. Between the U.S. filing a suit against Epstein, an investigation by the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office into Epstein's access to women during his Florida sentencing, and Alexander Acosta resigning from his position as labor secretary, Julie's reporting has had a significant impact. She's become one of the faces of this story, one of the modern heroes of journalism. Her phone is buzzing constantly. People Magazine wants to take her photo. Every TV show on Earth wants her on. She's constantly being offered awards and getting invited to speak at conferences all over the world. She's getting film and TV offers. I kept bugging her until she agreed to work on this podcast. So, yeah, it's, you know... It's been a, a pretty crazy uh, year. You know, it's been almost a year that the series came out, so it's been a pretty crazy, crazy year. So where are you now? Like, the story you've told is uh, from this girl who's on her own working in a lamp factory. How do you tell yourself that story? I, I mean, I don't know. I just, <laughs> I just... I just think about my kids, and I'm so glad that I'm going to be able to help them now. You know, I, I was had no money for so long, and now, you know, my daughter is trying to get into vet school, and my kids have always been worried. They don't like to ask me for money. They don't like to ask for anything and because, you know, I never had any money. And so I think the thing that I'm most grateful for is I was able to tell my daughter, you know, I'm going to be able to help you with vet school. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be able to. It's not like, a, you know, it's rewarding. This story is rewarding itself. But I'm also grateful that I'm going to be able to help my kids a little bit better than I was able to when they were younger. There was times when, you know, I was getting pay cuts and I couldn't. I had trouble paying the rent. I mean, I was one of those reporters for years. You know, you hear about poor people going to those check cashing agency. I was in that category. I understand that trap because I did it, you know, because I couldn't make ends meet. I remember one time our electric was turned off uh, when I was working for the Herald and Amelia was trying to dry her hair with a hair dryer and she put a candle on and her hair caught on fire. I was like, well, Amelia, you're never going to have to worry about hair catching on fire anymore. <laughs> Julie is happy and grateful that she has a bigger platform for her work now, especially because she knows she is not done. It's been more than two and a half years since Julie started trying to figure out why Epstein got his Florida plea deal. And that question is something no one has been able to answer yet. I still don't understand why they did what they did. I think that in time, we will learn more about it and certainly... I'm not finished with the story, so I certainly hope that I get to the right people that will finally have the courage to say, I know something and I, this is what happened. But I think a lot of people are just being very quiet about it because some they're complicit. Some of the people that knew about it, to some degree, are complicit because they knew about it and they didn't say anything. And that's the whole story, really, of Jeffrey Epstein. That was Adam Davidson with Julie K. Brown. Broken, Jeffrey Epstein is produced by three Uncanny Four Productions. 
Our senior producers are TJ Raphael and Krista Ripple. Dan Bobkoff is our showrunner. Production help this week from Jennifer Siegel and Jack Panyard. Gene Montavio Lucar is our engineer, and Casey Holford composed the theme. Our special correspondent and executive producer is Julie K. Brown. Our other executive producers are Adam Davidson, Laura Mayer, Adam McKay, and Kevin Messick. Share your thoughts on Twitter with the hashtag broken, Jeffrey Epstein. You can follow me at Avielskis, that's A-V-L-S-K-I-E-S. You can follow Julie Brown at JKB Journalist. And you can rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners like you find us. For Broken, I'm Arielle Levy.